All right, would you please take the Word of God and turn with me to the book of Acts in chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, as we are working our way through the book of Acts, this is some uh, 2,000 years ago, and uh, we are in the 21st century. We read about what happened in that first century, and um, I think we've been learning some things, hopefully helpful things as a church. Because in the 21st century, we don't want to be 21st century Christianity. We want to be 1st century Christianity. Uh, We want to look at what uh, the church did in the book of Acts, and we need to seek to preach the same message, uh, to do it uh, the same way. And that's the wonderful thing about uh, the Word of God, that uh, it uh, transcends uh, culture and time periods. Uh, The Word of God is always relevant. We don't have to change it. We have to to study it and know it. And uh, so we are in Acts chapter 13. And notice we're going to begin reading in um, Acts 13 and verse 13. And we uh, see that this is the the first uh, time that a a church is launching out what we call, although it's not called in the Bible, a missionary, but that's what Paul was. He traveled and started churches. And uh, chapter 13 marks that first time that we find throughout church history, that a church has done that. And so we can learn that as a church. We just had our missions conference, and so this is wonderful as we are studying this. And so we see that he left Antioch of Syria, and he went to the island of Cyprus, and uh, they preached there the Word of God. We know that they uh, talked to a deputy of the country who was influenced by a sorcerer there, and uh, they were amazed that the Word of God had an impact. Uh, change the lives of people there on the island of, of uh, Cyprus. And here we're going to read how they're going to go from the island of Cyprus. They're going to go northward and to what we would call Asia Minor, or it's present-day Turkey. Uh, and they're going to go to Perga. And what we read about the message that Paul is going to preach here, they're going to take a journey from Perga up to Antioch of Pisidia. So notice here, verse 13 of Acts 13, the Bible says, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogues sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. What an opportunity. (laughs) Uh, This would be the traditional way that would be done in the synagogue. They would often have somebody get up and read a portion of the Old Testament. And then often uh, teachers were called on who would teach and give an exhortation. And so here in this particular case, uh, Paul and Barnabas are in the synagogue and they're asked to give an exhortation in the synagogue. So this is quite remarkable. What an opportunity. And Paul is going to take advantage of this. So notice here, the Bible says, uh, verse 16, Then Paul stood up and beckoning with his hands. So don't be afraid if I move my hands around. This is not what I, Paul did this, all right? He beckoned with his hands and said, and by the way, this was an intense message. A Bible message, but an important message. You know, the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God is probably the most important thing that is going on in the world today. Uh, And so he, the Bible says, he begins his message, verse 16, and, and this You know, we don't have all the messages. Many messages we don't have recorded in Acts. We have Stephen's sermon, Acts chapter 7. We have Peter's sermon, Acts chapter 2. Here, Paul's sermon. And uh, it's good to pattern our message after what they preached. So notice, Men of Israel and ye that fear God give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. That's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an high arm brought them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. 
And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king. And God gave unto them Saul the son of Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Who think ye that I am? I am not he. That's who? Jesus, the Messiah. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to lose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and the rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read about, uh, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause of death in him, yet desired they Pilate that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep, and was laid unto his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. So he basically says what David wrote about was not about himself. Because he died and was not raised. But what David wrote about was about Jesus Christ. Verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you, the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I work a work in your day, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. And when the Jews were gone out of the synagogue, the Gentiles besought that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation was broken up, and many of the Jews and religious proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together, to hear the word of God. I want to bring your attention to verse 38. So he's, he does two things here. He first of all gives us a summary of the history of Israel. Beginning with Abraham. And goes all the way to um, John the Baptist. And he talks about the arrival of Jesus Christ. And after talking about uh, his arrival to his crucifixion and his resurrection, he, he gives, I guess, uh, uh, this is the, the, the most important part of the message. This is what this is all about. He went through all of this to get to this, verse 38. Be known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, who, what man? Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. I want to preach this morning on that 
preaching the forgiveness of sins. Preaching the forgiveness of sins. Before we get to the message here, there is no doubt that this message is a wonderful message. God wants us to have a record of this message. Before we get to the message, let me give you a few introductory comments. Because often we, we see the, the preaching of the gospel and we are amazed at what happened. I mean, this is going to be one Sabbath day. By the next Sabbath day, the whole city is going to come to hear the same message. Uh, that Paul uh, preached uh, to them, and uh, no doubt there's going to be a, a stir in the city. But before we get to the message, I think there's some elements that will help us because before we come to Paul's preaching in Antioch of Pisidia, we're given some important details about the circumstances of their arrival. I think it'll be good for us because often I think we all find ourselves and we get discouraged. Have you ever gotten discouraged? I am certain you have because I have been discouraged before. But notice here, First of all, there is probably discouragement from the departure of John. Now, often we read this and we get right to the message, but notice verse 14. When they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And so they're going to preach there. But notice before we uh, get there, the Bible says in verse 13, Now when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now we, we may read that and just pass over it, but this would be, I believe, a source of discouragement for both Paul and Barnabas. You say, why? Well, initially it may not be negatively impacted but we may not be negatively impacted by the statement. However, a few chapters later, in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are actually in conflict over John's departure, John Mark's departure. If you notice in chapter 15, verse um, uh, 36, so they're about to go on the second journey. And uh, notice here, the Bible says in verse 36, And some days after Paul said unto Barnabas, Let us go again and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they do. So they were going to go back and hit all those cities that they had preached on before. And Barnabas determined to take with them John, whose surname was Mark. So that's the one that left in chapter 13. Notice verse 38. But Paul thought not good to take him with them, who departed from them from Pamphylia, and went not with them to the work. Now, do you remember at the beginning of Acts chapter 13, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And so they take that journey. John's with them. He's ministering to them. He is helping them in the ministry. And now the, the journey is just getting started. They went to Cyprus, the island, and perhaps that was a nice little, you know, a uh, nice little island, and they had a, a great time. But as soon as they sail from the island up to Perga, northward in Asia Minor, they get there, and John leaves. And when we read the statement in, in Acts chapter 13, we may think nothing of it, but later it is apparent to us that John left the work. And so Paul is talking to Barnabas, and they're debating, and, and, and uh, they, were, they were related. So Barnabas was uh, John Mark's uncle. And so perhaps, uh, you know, he thought, you know, maybe the family relation there. But Paul thought, this is not good. There has been a pattern of unfaithfulness from John Mark. So when we read in Acts chapter 13, before the message, notice what just happened. Paul is about to go and preach the gospel. But before that, imagine the discouragement that he faced from having a fellow laborer leave them. And by the way, throughout the ministry of Paul, we find that happening over and over again. Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Uh, Paul mentioned some people who basically quit on the ministry. They, they quit serving God, and, and Paul remembers that. And so no doubt this would be a source of discouragement for the Apostle Paul, and also for Barnabas before they get there. But nonetheless, they continued on their journey. They didn't quit. We also see that there would be a second point of discouragement before the message, and that is discouragement from the difficult journey. Now we read in verse uh, 14, okay, so verse 13, they go from the island of Cyprus, which is Paphos. They go uh, to Perga in Pamphylia, which is northward, and John leaves for Jerusalem. And then the Bible says they departed, verse 14, from Perga they came to Antioch of Pisidia. And we may just read that and say, oh, well, they journeyed there. But they didn't travel the way we travel today. 
They didn't take a plane up there. They didn't take a Uber or a Lyft. They didn't drive up there. Uh, they took a journey there. Now, Antioch of Pisidia, going from Perga to Antioch was a difficult journey. It was about 100 miles north. No cars. The terrain was mainly mountainous and would need, they would need to climb about 3,500 feet up a mountain. So this was also a place, by the way, on this journey that robbers would uh, take the opportunity on this difficult journey to ambush travelers and to take their money and to take any of their possessions. And so this would be a difficult a journey uh, and we... We, they, they get there, and so understand, John Mark has left, and it's been a difficult journey. They're tired. You know, there are things that some perhaps discourage us often. It's things that happen, and relationships with people, and something happens, and we get discouraged. Or even sometimes we just get physically exhausted, and we get discouraged. And yet, they're here in the synagogue. I would imagine here we find, it's interesting to me that we find throughout uh, the life of Paul, he went to a city, and the Bible said he preached to the city. In this case, however, they are called on to give an exhortation. In other words, I wonder if they got there and they were tired from their journey, they probably think to themselves, well, let's just wait a few days, uh, catch our rafts, or get ourselves together. John Mark was a very uh, big help to them in the ministry. He's not there anymore. Uh, so they're getting themselves together. But it seems here that God opened the door and opened an opportunity for Paul to preach there in the synagogue. He was not the one that asked. And so I wonder how many times... Uh, we miss God's will for our lives or a service opportunity because we're discouraged. And then God opens a door and we don't take it because we, we may be discouraged or we may be discontented or we may be troubled by uh, somebody else's life or we may even be physically exhausted and we just decide not to serve the Lord. Well, here we find that Paul is going to have an opportunity to preach the Word. And so we see here, that the preaching is going to happen from, uh, notice he begins in verse 16, he, he stands up, and by the way, this is very similar by tradition what Jesus did when you find him going to the synagogue of Nazareth. Uh, you remember it was given to him a portion of Scripture he read from Isaiah, where we have Isaiah chapter 61, he read from the portion of Scripture, and when we read in Luke chapter 4, after he read from that portion, he gave back the Scripture uh, to the person in charge in that synagogue. And then he went and sat down. And the Bible says that everybody was just looking at him. And you remember what Jesus said? He said, Today is this scripture fulfilled before your eyes. And the scripture was about the Messiah. And so he declared himself to be the Messiah. And so in the same manner here, we find here that the, the, there's the reading of the law in verse 15. And the prophets... The rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men of brethren, ye have, uh, uh, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. I like that question. If ye have any word. Well, we have a word. Uh, let me tell you about that word. And so this opportunity opens up. And so Paul is going to stand up and preach. And it is interesting to me that we find a similar pattern in all the messages in the book of Acts. He go, they often go back to the beginning of Jewish history. And there's a reason for that. And that is because when we think about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ didn't just come on the scene and then declared Himself to, to be the Messiah. Uh, there, there, there's a whole foundation and there's been uh, many years where God has uh, made sure to, uh, to give us the evidence as to who would be the Messiah and what He would do. In other words, when we get to the New Testament, it is not a foreign thing to us that Jesus Christ's feet and hands were pierced. It is not a foreign thing to us that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would be rejected of His own people. It is not a mystery to us that Jesus Christ would perform miracles before a people and that His own people would reject Him. It is not a mystery to us that when Jesus Christ would die, He would die for the sins of the world. You see, all of that comes from the Old Testament. And they uh, do that. And so Paul here, he begins with the Old Testament. And notice here, this is a, a, a great summary of Jewish history there as he begins this message. And let's look at that. Why is he doing this? 
Let's look at this. I wanted to, to break up, not that I'm trying to give Paul an outline here, but you know I like outlines. So I'm going to preach through Paul's sermon, and I'm going to outline it for him and for us. There's going to be three sections here. First of all, we see that Paul details God's plan. He goes through the Jewish history. And then he's going to go give details about God's promise, which is Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, he's going to talk about God's provision, which is what? Forgiveness of sins. So notice, first of all, let's consider God's plan. Notice here, Paul begins and he says, here now, he is in a synagogue. The majority of the people that are there are Jews, but we know later that there are other Gentiles. Perhaps the Gentiles were standing on the outskirts or on the outside, but it is evident that they heard the message. Because when all the Jews leave the synagogue, the Gentiles that perhaps were on the outside that heard the message, they come to Paul and they said, what about us? Can you preach that to us? So it seemed that the message was intended first for the Jew, but then the Jew did not listen, they left, and then the Gentiles come in and says, we want to hear that message. But uh, nonetheless, no doubt the Gentiles were discontented by their pagan religions, their false gods, and so they want something more. And so they go to the synagogue, as by the way, many people in the world do. They often come to church because they're curious. Why? Because in the world they don't have the answers. They're not satisfied. There's no joy. And so there's some, uh, there's, there's some curiosity that comes over them and so everyone wants all they'll come to church why because they want to listen in on what's going on in the church so here the Gentiles are listening in what's going on in the synagogue and Paul is going to preach a message that's going to impact them I'm certain that many Gentiles would often be outside the synagogue listening in but this is a different message that they haven't heard before now notice here God's plan Paul details God's plan and so he goes through a chronological history of the nation of Israel. Notice, let's go through that. He says, first of all, verse 16, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. The God of this people of Israel chose our fathers. I want you to notice throughout all those verses, Paul was going to say, God did this. Now this is important. Because by the time we get to Jesus Christ, Paul has established a foundation that before Christ, this is what all that God did. Not that our fathers did. That God did. You see, the fact that Jesus Christ is Messiah is not the doing of man. It's the doing of God. Amen. So he begins by saying, verse 17, God chose our fathers. Notice, the God of this people of Israel chose our fathers, and indeed he did. Genesis chapter 12, he called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldee, and then he gave a promise to Abraham. Uh, now, many things are included in the promise, but one of those things, he says, uh, in thy seed uh, shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And so part of the promise that was given to Abraham was the promise of a seed. And so God chose Abraham to bring forth what? A seed. That was part of the promise at the onset. And so God chose our fathers. And by the way, that choosing was not based on merit. It was based on mercy. That's important. Based on mercy, not merit. We also see, notice, that then he mentions and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And so he mentions our fathers, which would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we know that after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, he, he brought them later into Egypt. And we know that it was there in Egypt that they multiplied. And the Bible says in Exodus chapter 1 that they became exceeding mighty. And so God used the famine in the land of Canaan to bring them into Egypt. And that is where God exalted them and multiplied them and raised up a nation out of them. That is what God did. Do you notice what the Bible says again? And exalted the people. Who exalted the people? God did. That's what God did. So God raised up a nation uh, as they were strangers in the land of Egypt. Notice in verse 17. And with an high arm brought them out of it. That is the Exodus. Exodus chapter 12 and chapter 13. And so who delivered them? God delivered His people out of Egyptian bondage. You remember? That was actually prophesied in Genesis chapter 15. Where God said 
to Abraham that he would bring uh, his descendants into a land for 400 years. And after that mark, he would bring them out. And so God did this. Then we continue to read in verse 18, And about the time of 40 years suffered he their manners in the wilderness. And yes, we have the, uh, the book of Numbers, the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. Why? Uh, because they would not go and possess the land that God was going to do. And so God uh, got rid of that generation, rose up another generation, and brought them into the land. Verse 19, And when he had uh, destroyed seven nations, who's he? God. He destroyed the nations in the land of Canaan, and he divided the land to them by lot. And so we know that after they conquered the land, God divided uh, to all the tribes a portion of the land in Canaan. Verse 20. Uh, that's what God did. Verse 20. And after that, he gave unto them judges. Who gave them judges? God did. So God gave them judges. Why? Because they rebelled once they got in the land. They got comfortable. They did exactly what he told them in Deuteronomy not to do. And so what happened in their disobedience? God raised up an enemy uh, to destroy them and to uh, put them under tribute. And so then God brought up a judge to deliver them. That's what God did for them. Uh, we also read... Uh, that, uh, that Now this took place for 450 years until Samuel the prophet. Often we speak of Samuel as the last judge and the first prophet. And so here's Samuel. Uh, he was the prophet. And you remember afterwards, verse 21, they desired a king and God gave unto them Saul. Who gave them Saul? God. That's what God did. You see, Paul says God did this and he God did this and God did this and God. He doesn't say now the Jews, they did this and they did that. No, he says God did this. This is what God did. This, this has all been the work of God all along. And so then, uh, God, they wanted a king. They wanted to be like all the other nations, and God gave them a king, and that was King Saul. Notice, he reigned for 40 years, he says, verse 21. Then, verse 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. Now, it's interesting that he says he raised up. He didn't say that of Saul. You see, uh, Saul, he, he was given to them, but David he raised up. Why? Because there's a particular purpose in David. Notice, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Verse 22, shall fulfill all my will. Why? Because God raised up Abraham so that he could fulfill his will. What is his will? Well, we're going to find it's in this, found in the seed of David. The seed of Abraham. When we open the book of Matthew in chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ is given, and he is called the son of Abraham, the son of David. So God's going to accomplish his will in David, just like he originated in Abraham. And so he's going to fulfill the will of God. Notice verse 23. Of this man's seed hath God, according to his promise, raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. And now notice here, he talks about the promise of this seed. Well, what is that? Well, it actually originated from before the time of Abraham. In other words, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we know that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. And so we are not really, uh, we're not really clear about what that means when we read Genesis chapter 3, but as we proceed and get to Genesis chapter 12, we know that God chose uh, Abraham. He raised up, and, and from his seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. And so this is, uh, in other words, it gets to be more specific. And then we get even to closer when we think about David, it would be the seed of David, and we narrow it down, and finally we get to the promise of the seed, which is Christ. And so the work of God begins to be some general promise of a, the seed of the woman. And then we, the closer we get to the New Testament, we get a nearer and nearer and nearer. And we get to the seed of David. And, and he declares here that the seed of David is Jesus Christ. And notice it is God that raised up Israel a Savior. God did that. Uh, verse 24, when John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So all that we have up to this point is basically the details of God's plan. And so he goes back to the Old Testament and he tells those Jews who, by the way, by pattern, every Saturday they would read from the Scriptures. They would be familiar with every single thing that Paul mentioned. Paul is not mentioning anything new. But he is showing them indeed that God's plan has, uh, ha has happened and that his plan has transpired into a promise that has been fulfilled. 
You see, what, we, what he has detailed so far in the message is there's been a promise. We know Abraham our father. There was a promise. A promise of a seed. Now we know Galatians says when it was given to him, the Bible says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He didn't believe in seeds as in multiple seeds, but in seed singular, which is Christ. That's what Abraham believed in. And so he, they looked at the plan of God unfolding, and finally, now when it gets to Christ, he says it's the promise. So the promise of God is based on the plan of God that's been worked out. It's interesting that you, you notice the details throughout the history of the Jewish history. We notice all their failures. Right? Uh, the trials, the difficulties, the failures, the lack of faith. He had to send judges. He had to take him through the wilderness. And throughout all the ups and downs, God still fulfilled His promise. That's how wonderful God is. Because despite the wickedness of men, and despite the failure of men, God still accomplished His promise. And so that's a wonderful thing. And so we see here God's plan. And so he expresses God's plan in the history of Israel. That's what Stephen did. That is also what Peter did on the day of Pentecost. That's the pattern in the book of Acts. But now we see not only God's plan, but we see God's promise. And so now we have a, a broad view of the history of Israel, but he brings it down to a singular promise, pointing everybody to one person. And by the way, that is the message of the Bible. The Bible is about one person. As a matter of fact, you'll get to the book of Revelation. We get to uh, Revelation chapter 13, and we see that the kingdoms of this world are, becomes the, are become the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so, all of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. And so here, he brings us to the most important person. What is the message of the gospel? It's not a religion. It's a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. Now, he mentions here that this is the promise, but notice he's going to give some supporting evidence as to why he is the promise. Because he doesn't say, you know, there'll be many messiahs in that day. Many people claim to be the messiah. Many people claim to be the Christ, but there's only one messiah. And by the way, there is only one true way to heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ. He said himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And so the only way to have eternal life is through Jesus Christ. So let's detail here God's promise. What is the testimony of God? Because up to this point, this is everything that God did. But God's not done. Notice God's promise. He mentions uh, verse uh, 24. When John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance... To all the people of Israel, and as John fulfilled his course, he said, Who think ye that I am? I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. And so here we have several things. First of all, we have the testimony of his lineage. He is the seed of David. He is of the seed of Abraham. When both lineages are given of Matthew and Mary, you'll find they're both from the seed of David. Now we know he was not the son of Joseph. He was of the seed of the woman. It's interesting. The Bible tells us all along it would be the seed of the woman, not the seed of man. Mary was conceived of the Holy Ghost. She was virgin. She knew not a man. And it doesn't matter how many people deny the virgin birth. That's what the Bible says. It's true. And so the testimony of the lineage here, we see that. We also see the testimony of John the Baptist. And, so, and by the way, John the Baptist was prophesied. The book of Malachi said there'd be somebody that would come, that would prepare the way for the Messiah. And John the Baptist was he that prepared the way. And John the Baptist, remember, as he was preaching uh, repentance and people were being baptized, there's coming one after me. People thought, are you, John, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that should come? And he says, no, I am not he. There's coming somebody after me whose shoe latchet I'm not worthy to lose. And you remember when Jesus Christ shows up, there's uh, throngs of people gathered around listening to John who've been listening to him day after day after day. He did some strange things after all, but they listened to the message and then one day he saw Jesus Christ and he says this, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. 
Now the people in the synagogue, they knew of John the Baptist. They've heard of his name. People, when they went to Israel before the time of Jesus Christ, they no doubt went to listen to John the Baptist. Even the Bible tells us that born there is no greater than John the Baptist that is born of a woman. I no doubt he was a great preacher. And so can you see him announcing Jesus Christ? The Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And no doubt the, the mind of the Jew would go back to Isaiah 53. The Lamb. That's the Messiah. So we have the testimony of the lineage of Christ. The testimony of John the Baptist who declared him. Uh, he even said that it was not him. And then we also have the testimony of the crucifixion. Notice what he says. He says in verse 26, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. So notice here, he reproves the Jewish world. Why? Because he says, you, you read every Sabbath day, you read the Old Testament prophets. And yet, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, you have the proof of his lineage, you have the proof of the miracles, John the Baptist, his forerunner, announced him, and you had all the scriptures before your eyes, but you missed him. You missed him. And so, not only did you miss him, but you, you went even a step further, and you condemned him. You accused him of blasphemy. And so verse 28 he says, And though they found no cause of death in him, they desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, notice here, do you see what he says? When they, who? The Jews in Jerusalem. When they had fulfilled all that was written of him, who? Jesus. They took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. And so here's what Paul says. So Jesus Christ came and he had the testimony of the lineage, the proof that he was the Messiah. He also had the testimony of John the Baptist. We know the miracles and the signs they did while he was on earth confirmed that he was the Messiah. And yet, uh, we know that the Jews in Jerusalem, they rejected him and, and they crucified him. And he says, and, and by the way, just so we all know, and so they, that was not an accident. They, they did something wrong. But we're talking here about what God did. What did God do? Isaiah 53 said, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. By his stripes, Isaiah 53 says, We are healed. And so again, the cross, yes, the Jews were involved, but he tells them they were involved. They actually, what they did was fulfill what God did and what God determined to do. The crucifixion was not an accident. You see, that's a, a testimony of the plan of God and the promise of God. Because again, the promise of God is not that a seed would come, but that the world through the seed might be saved. And so he details the crucifixion. He goes on to say, uh, verse 29, When they had fulfilled, notice all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in the sepulcher, but God raised him from the dead. There we go. God does something again. God raised him up from the dead. Why? Because the psalm said that he would. Notice, as he was seen many days of them which came up from him. So notice there's the testimony of his resurrection, but also that the fact that there was witnesses that saw him who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. So you see, he said, what God promised? Maybe when we start with Abraham. God has fulfilled. And so he basically details everything from the time that God chose Abraham all the way to the time that Jesus Christ was crucified and rose from the dead. He says, God has done that and he has fulfilled his promise. God did not, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, God did not say, oops, I didn't see that coming. God says, that was my plan all along. So that Jesus might die for the sins of the people. 
And so he says, verse 33, God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. As concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he said unto on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Wherefore he saith also in another psalm, Thou shalt not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. For David, after he served his own generation by the will of God, fell on sleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. And so you read in the Psalms about Jesus Christ and we understand that David was not talking about himself. But indeed he was talking about Jesus Christ. David died and saw corruption, but Jesus Christ did not. And so this is what all that God did. So we see God's plan, God's promise. But then we see God's provision. Do you notice verse 38? And so here is, here is he brings the message to a close. And he says, all right, there's a decision that needs to be made. Be it known unto you, verse 38, therefore men and brethren that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. So, God's plan and God's promise. What is it all about? It's about this. The forgiveness of sins. He says, And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that come upon you, which is spoken of the prophets. Behold, ye despisers, and wonder, and perish. And so here, he, he speaks of God's provision. And so there's a call. There's a, there's a call that's twofold. There's, first of all, there's a call to believe, and then there's a call to beware. And you know, every message has that call. That's a basic call. Believe what is said, Receive it, but also beware if you don't believe and don't receive it. You see, for every message that is preached, there's always a two-fold call to believe and to beware. And notice here he says, uh, to believe what? And so here is God's provision. What is God's plan all about? And what is God's promise all about. It brings our attention to one singular thing. It could be mentioned in various ways, and he does so in two ways. He says, first of all, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what was the plan of God all about? What was the promise of God all about. We know that that is what God did. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross and we preach His crucifixion and His burial and His resurrection, what are we preaching? We're preaching that through Jesus Christ, you can have forgiveness of sins. We know what Jesus did on the cross. The Bible says God hath made Him, Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so when Jesus Christ died on the cross, when we say to the world today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, what are we saying? We're saying, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, but it, because it is through Christ that your sins can be forgiven. But then he's going to give us more details, and he's going to say a different way in verse 39, by Him, that is Christ, all that believe are justified from all things. Oh, that's important. Justification, and notice it's justification from all things. Now that's a legal term. If you uh, were in the courtroom that day, you were uh, guilty of committed a crime, well you would be tried in a court. And so you'd go to the court and the, uh, the person who stands as the judge would weigh the evidence and he would, he, he would say uh, two things. He would either say innocent or guilty. And if you're guilty, you had to pay a crime. And if you were innocent, you could go free. And so if, if somebody was tried in a court of law for the crimes that they had committed, there would be sometimes, we, we even refer to this, uh, I think there's a presidential power uh, where they can pardon somebody. And so in that sense, when you think about a pardon, uh, if you have the list of all of the crimes that somebody committed, and the President of the United States, he stamps and he says, pardon, then it's as if that person had never committed a crime. 
all of the things that are against that person are expunged. And so we might say that, well, that is pardoned. And certainly there is part in the Lord that all of our sins here, he mentions here, have been forgiven. They've been pardoned. They've been done away with. The list of sin that was against us, between us and God, as the enemies of God, has been forgiven. Uh, the paper has been removed. There is a stamp on the paper that says you're pardoned. But then there's the word justified. Now that's another word. You see, justified would be a step further than pardoned. You see, pardoned includes the assumption that you've done something wrong, but we're just going to overlook it. We're just going to say, you know what? We know that you've done something wrong, but we're going to be merciful. We're going to be gracious. And so we're going to pretend as if you have never done anything wrong. But justification goes a step further. You see, justification, when you uh, are justified, that means you are declared just. And so the word justification is when the judge puts on the paper, justified, meaning you have never sinned. That's what justification means. We find you as if you've never done anything wrong. There is no guilt. You don't have to leave the courtroom with any guilt over your head thinking that there is some sin or some a sin that needs to be paid for in your life. You are justified. You're declared just. You've never sinned. Well, we know that's not us. But that's the promise of Jesus Christ justification. Not just the forgiveness of sin. Not the fact that God puts away our sin. But the fact is that we, Romans chapter 4, have the imputed righteousness of God. Yep. Imputed righteousness. Righteousness means perfection. Right. Just. That is imputed. You see on the cross, Jesus Christ, He took our sin upon Himself. And when we believe on Him, the Bible says we are justified. We get His righteousness. So, he says, that's the plan of God and God's promise. Forgiveness of sins and justification. But he adds something else to help them. Do you notice? By him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification? Just as if I had always done right? Righteousness? Always? Righteous? Well, we know that's us. And by the way, he says, and, and, and you know, standing in the synagogue here, you all know that just by observing the law of Moses, that cannot justify you. Now, you, you may think that, well, I'm, I need to do this and I need to uh, serve God and live for God. But the truth is, there's still sin in your life. And God, who is a holy God and a righteous God and a just God, He cannot allow sin into heaven. He cannot allow any imperfection into heaven. And so what He did is He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross because there is no amount of good deed, no amount of keeping the law, no amount or attempt to, be, to, to try to live righteously that can erase the sin. It cannot erase the sin. The only thing that can erase the sin is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that covers our sin and washes all the filth white as snow. Amen. That's Jesus Christ. You see, you and I, we're not worthy of eternal life. We are all worthy of hell. But God devised a plan, fulfilled His promise in Christ that our sins could be forgiven and that we could be justified by His name if we believe in Him. You see, you can be justified by the law. You see, imagine if you're in the courtroom and you say, the judge says, all right, you've, you've broken the law, sorry. I say, no, judge, look, I know I broke the law, but from now on, I'm not going to break the law anymore. You may leave the courtroom that day and the judge says, that's fine. But you see, that's still hanging over your head. You still broke the law. So that, that goes on. You leave the courtroom and the judge says, well, I've let you go, but I mean, you, you still broke the law. It's still there. That, that mark, it's still on your record. Later, if somebody arrests you, they look back on your record and say, look, it's, it's on your record. It's there. We can't ignore it. This is what you did in 1998. Now you got caught today. And, and that, but no, Salvation means that when somebody, somebody cannot look back and say, now this is what happened in your life then. You see, no amount of good deed today can erase sin. But Jesus can. 
he can erase him. And that's why he died on the cross. So there's a call to believe. Notice that's a simple call. Believe. Uh, verse uh, 39. Believe the, him that uh, all that believe are justified from all things. And he says in verse 40, Beware therefore, lest that come upon you which are spoken of in the prophets. Behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish. Notice there's three steps there. Despise, wonder, and perish. Beware of those things. Um, despise means that cannot be. Surely I have to do something. It can't just be the forgiveness of sin and justification. That's too strong a term. Do you even know what that means? I think Paul knew what that meant. It's impossible for a man just to be justified and just have everything. All he has to do is to believe. Are you sure? Is be, beware that you despise not that. Don't, don't despise. And what happens is when you despise, you, you, you wonder, you're like, yeah, hmm. I, just, I just don't see it. And you wonder and you, you walk around and you think, well, it might be true or not be true. But if you remain in that, you despise and then you wonder. He said, though, what's the third? Perish. If you are not a born-again Christian and you've sat there and said, I just, I don't, I don't, I just don't see it. Uh, and just wondering about it. I, just, I, I feel like there's got to be something else. If you die in your sin, you will perish and go for eternity in the devil's hell. But you don't have to because Jesus Christ on the cross has provided the forgiveness of sins. And if you believe in His name, you will be justified. And you get to heaven and God says, well, why shall I let you into heaven? And I said, I don't start, it's not going to be I. A lot of people today think, well, why are you going to heaven? Well, I, I go to church and I read my Bible and I pray and I, I'm a pretty good person. You ask me why I'm going to heaven, I say, because of Jesus. I can't go. But because of Jesus, I can go. That's the message that he's preaching to them. Now, I, I'm going to stop here. We're going to finish this chapter next week. But I wonder if there's anybody this morning, if you're not a Christian today, there's never been a time when you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Beware that you not despise and wonder and perish. Would you believe in what Jesus did for you? That He died on the cross to offer you forgiveness of sins and justification? His record can be yours. It's not about anything that you merited. It's about the merit of Jesus Christ. When I stand before God, I stand in Christ. All throughout the New Testament epistles, He says, Rejoice because you are in Christ. We are seated today in heavenly places in Christ. Not because of us, but because of Him. You see, that's what salvation is. It's Jesus Christ.